You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 19th of January. And on the programme today, we looked at the weird and the wonderful building trends in the Middle East right now, including underground communities and indeed floating resorts. And that was with construction expert Chris Seymour from Mace Group. We also found out why the remote Indian island Lakshadweep has suddenly become incredibly popular. Meanwhile, as China's population shrinks by 2 million Worrying demographers in the country, we found out why it's a cause for concern with expert Professor Stuart Geetel baston from Hong Kong University. And we also considered some of the UAE's own policies to encourage Emiratis to have more babies. That was with Professor Wifag Adnan from New York University, Abu Dhabi. Meanwhile, scientists at American University of Sharjah have patented a new breast cancer therapy that promises minimal side effects and maximum impact. We spoke to the lead scientist, Professor Gateb Husseini, about how it works. And I had a question to ask you. Do you have a favourite tree? Well, Novak Djokovic has one and it's in Melbourne and he's known to regularly climb it and meditate under its branches. We got to the root of the story with Vicky Allen, the author of For the Love of Trees. Plus, Chris McCarty brought us up to date with all the latest sporting headlines. Easily one of my favourite topics to talk about on the radio is the crazy, imaginative, I suppose, innovative development projects that they have out here in the Middle East. And I have learned in my decade here um, that <laughs> that you can't presume they're not going to happen. I mean, this is one of the reasons for this is I suppose I when I first arrived, I was informed that the Dubai was going to extend the creek um, all the way to sort of round to the other coast section. And in order to do that, they were going to need to build under three massive motorways. And um, and then two years later, they'd done it. <laughs> and so ever since that's happened, I, I've sort of, I, I, have, I have no longer sneered at sort of uh, ever more creative uh, development and construction plans. But I mean, ultimately, the towers have always got to be the tallest or the longest. And then you've got cantilevers. We've just seen the biggest cantilever ever open. We've got sky bridges. Uh, and then it's not enough to have the biggest swimming pool. It has to be on top of a skyscraper as well. Um, of course, Saudi, uh, you, I mean, that's just what we've got here in, in the UAE. But, but obviously in Saudi Arabia, that's where some of the weirdest and most wonderful ideas are currently being introduced. Um, literally in the last two days, the kingdom's announced a very odd underground community that they're calling Aquellum. That's going to be at Neom. It's going to be completely invisible from the outside, but it's going to have everything from hotels, apartments, shops and entertainment, all underground. It sort of raises the question, why? Are they expecting some sort of nuclear apocalypse? Anyway, and then you've got the line, of course, that that's supposedly going to stretch for 100. It's going to be thin, but it's going to stretch for 170 kilometres all the way from the mountains in Neom to the Red Sea, um, which is also completely bonkers. And that, But the biggest trend, I suppose, for the last sort of month or so seems to be 
building on water. So Saudi Arabia also announcing something called The Rig, which is an oil rig inspired entertainment project that, of course, will be on the sea. And then there's something that's actually already come to fruition here in the UAE because journalists have got their first sneak peek of the Kapinski's Neptune. It's being flagged as the world's first floating five-star resort and apparently it's pretty much ready to go. And we sort of got us thinking about what the realities are of building on water and what the potential benefits might be because obviously we have got rising sea levels. So that raises all sorts of questions as well for sort of future developments. So I'm delighted to say I'm joined in the studio by our resident construction expert, Chris Seymour. He is Managing Director for the Middle East and Africa for MACE Group and joins me now in the studio. Chris, good to see you. How are you? Very pleased to be here. I'm fine. Thank you, Georgia. Yeah, let's talk about that recent introduction of the Kapinski's Neptune here in Dubai. Uh, it's all been quite secret, Squirrel. What do you know about it? Yeah, it really interesting, uh, really interesting project. And I think it does tend to follow this water theme uh, that we're seeing almost becoming a, a trend across the region. So the uh, Kempinski floating hotel is, I guess, it's part, halfway between the World Island and, and Jumeirah, if you could kind of imagine that. Um, and it's it's not only just uh, the hotel, it's also working as, if you like, a, a docking station for the Neptune Villas, which are more actually houseboat than, than floating villa. It, fundamentally, these are not uh, fixed to the, uh, to the bottom of the sea. They actually can move as well. So that's really the theme around uh, the Kempinski uh, floating hotel. Uh, interesting. We always heard a lot about it. Uh, as ever in Dubai, we're waiting to see it, but it has happened. And I, and I think this is one of the interesting things about the Middle East. It always tends to confound the critics that uh, they come up with these quite uh, ambitious plans and then they come to fruition and and there they are and uh, the Kempinski floating hotel is one example of it um as as you mentioned before the there's been two announced in in uh, in KSA that actually did have uh, uh, if you like a mini announcement about 3 years ago in 2021 i think we were just coming out of covid so maybe not noticed but certainly the rig which is basically a platform uh, that supported across uh, two, as I understand it, two decommissioned oil rigs. So there actually are decommissioned oil rigs and then a, a newer rig, which also has uh, a marina there. And that is going to be a platform uh, where it will just be, a, a, I say just, it's a, effectively an, an entertainment location, 40 minutes and a fast boat ride from the uh, shore. All of these are very different uh, and some are more tourism associated rather than real estate focused but the tie that binds them all together of course is water uh and yeah. that's a that that's one of the things that, that developers are looking for now there's also the octagon which i haven't looked at is it the octagon that i haven't looked into much or is it the pentagon i can't remember what it is octagon. the octagon yeah uh, now is that floating as well so half of the so octagon is the uh, again the world's first uh, floating uh, industrial city this is in, again another neon uh, project so half of it is uh, is floating. If you can imagine, half of an octagon um, is floating, and then the other half is actually on land. The piece on land is already being developed, and this was something that's probably around about four uh, four years ago. This was announced, um, and that one is uh, is progressing. We haven't seen the floating parts of it yet, but the uh, the land side part is already uh, progressing. And I think there's uh, it, it's it's that's um, probably something that is unique. We're not often seeing that what you are seeing is the attraction of waterfront and this is something that developers are are following uh e extensively i think there was a research uh, done quite a few years ago now in the us which 
uh, some came to the conclusion that people, given a choice, would rather be next to water. And so given that, it drives demand and it also has scarcity. And of course, that drives values. And that's why uh, developers are finding every opportunity to try to create that water experience for customers, whether it's in a tourism context or whether it's actually in a real estate context. The Palms here, Palm Jumeirah and uh, Palm Jebel their focus is creating waterfront. So it's exactly the same argument. Um, it's just a slightly different uh, offer. Now, of course, along with that, you get a lot of construction and engineering uh, challenges and uh, and that increased cost but the increase in value is uh, it really does eclipse that increase in cost the whole thing is work it, uh, worth it and that model works as we've seen in, on Palm Jumeirah. From an engineering point of view is it hard to build a floating hotel and what's the difference between a floating hotel and a boat? That's uh, that is the very good question Georgia and when you're getting to a floating hotel a floating villa you are starting to talk about a boat now it may be sold as real estate but fundamentally it is a waterborne vehicle rather than uh, rather than real estate and that is completely different set of engineering uh, challenges and different set of engineering expertise as well so you're seeing almost the uh, combining uh, uh, maritime engineering with real estate engineering. So from that perspective, this is really interesting because it's not often that those two groups get to work together that often, but it, it, it is a, it's its own unique uh, challenge. And there's certain uh, constraints, particularly around weather and also safety, that have to be uh, respected regardless of the use of that particular uh, asset that is, is floating on the, on the surface. And of course, if it is on the sea, as, uh, as the floating hotel is, you have got the tides to think about and you do have weather to think about as well. Because I suppose in some ways you could argue it's not a boat because it doesn't go anywhere. But equally, it could still sink. If you got the engineering wrong, you, you've, you've got, I mean, I suppose equally tall buildings could fall down. But, you know, it, it's quite immediate. I think, I think, my, I think I'd be quite nervous uh, to I, be in a new one. You, I, I can, and I can understand that. And I th- you know, you'd, you'd hope both those events don't happen. But that's, yeah. that's the reason that, uh, you know, there are very well developed engineering uh, requirements for both a very tall building and a floating asset, and they both have to be respected, but they're both very different. Um, and so it is It is interesting how we bring them together. Uh, it just circles back to that same focus point on people like water. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, uh, and the drive from that is usually uh, the developers. Oxagon is a unique in that respect because it is entirely functional, uh, group of assets. It's very large, but it is entirely functional because it has uh, a port. It's uh, it's a port, and it encourages uh, light industrial and warehousing and logistics. So that's its focus. But usually, it is either a tourism or real estate focus. Do you think that we're going to see? more of these types of developments, not just because people like to be by the water, but because if the reality is that sea levels are going to rise, then land might become in, I don't know, short supply or, or there'll be let, there'll certainly be less of it, even if it's not in short supply. That's a good point. I think we're not, I don't think we're seeing those developments aimed at, a, um, if you like, a, a resilience a, a climate resilience piece yet. Um, what we are seeing is that um, value piece okay. around uh, around creating a waterfront. And most of the time, resilience is more around sea defence. 
rather than, uh, as I say, the, the floating looking towns. For solutions. Yeah, <laughs> looking for solutions in the event of uh, in, in the event of sea level rise. Um, but the uh, the moment is more around that that value play around development. Let's go back to the rig. Is that floating, or will it be? Or are oil rigs actually tethered to the ground? Brandy and I were having a debate about this on the okay. business breakfast this morning. Well, it's both. Uh, ah. So if it's if the water is shallow enough, the oil rig will be fixed to the they jack down the the, the legs and it will be actually fixed into the uh, sea floor. If it is working in uh, deep water, then it will be on its basically semi submersible pods, uh, floating, um, and it's usually uh, kept in the same place. Uh, these days, usually by uh, by sensors that are linked to GPS too, actually, and thrusters that keep the oil rig in the in the right place. So it's uh, you can have both. Looking at the geography, because it's near Junaid Island, so it's just on the eastern side of Saudi Arabia. So most of the development we've seen so far has been on the west or northwest. Yeah, this is on the eastern side, and it actually is amongst uh, some of the uh, oil wells. Um, so it's just in the in the Arabian Gulf. There, it's near Junaid Island. I think the depth of the water there is is between 20 and 30 metres, and that's easily something that you would put on legs. So I'm guessing these two uh, rigs and the the third one, indeed, would be fixed to the floor. And then just going back to the other recent bonkers announcement, uh, which is Aquellum, the idea that people will want to live, work and play all underground like moles. I mean, is that is that a concept idea or can you actually imagine it being built? Because it's not like it's a small village. They're going for they're going all out, you know, you know, thousands of people living like moles. Indeed. And it uh, has a a, the the entrance piece of that is around a semi submerged uh, marina as well and you go through a tunnel um to this you enter uh, through the sea uh, that's right it's um, so bond isn't it, it it's like it is it's like someone's it, watching all of james bond films and going i want that but bigger for an entire community and that, then it happens that's it and uh, and this um this community if you like is, is going to be almost um, within a uh, within a mountain um it's got a very much a, a sort of a metaverse a feel about it it's uh, there for innovation. There's obviously some hospitality there. Uh, it's probably quite a niche offer. I would I would suggest not everybody wants to do that. But does I, anyone I, want to? I, I mean, I, when you say niche, I love it. I mean, it's so polite. I, 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 <laughs> it I, is I would expect niche. that the, a, you know a fair amount of research has been done. There, there is, yeah. I've no doubt, a segment of the population that would find actually that is exactly the place I want to be, and that's the place I want to develop my business. And they will be with like-minded people. And so, from that yeah. perspective, you can see it's an attraction. From an engineering construction perspective entirely possible and, and entirely interesting as well i'd say so one very oh no i can't i was going to talk to you about the ski but we can't we're already 17 minutes past we haven't got time it's been an absolute pleasure as always chris talking to you thank you so much i've got to get out very quickly but that i mean as you can tell i've run five minutes over pretty much because it was such an interesting conversation thank you so much for thank your you time very much. hope to no see problem. you very soon indeed that's chris seymour managing director for the middle east and africa for mace group Hello there, welcome back to the agenda. And we're going to stick with the watery theme, but look at it from a slightly different angle now, because an Indian archipelago has been generating an awful lot of headlines for the last week. It's called Lakshadweep. 
Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, basically, it came to the world's attention after a visit from the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi triggered an unexpected row with uh, the neighbouring Maldives. Basically, Mr Modi used his visit to position the island as an alternative to the Maldives. Uh, some government officials in the Maldives were a little bit um, sneering about that, shall we say, and it has led to quite uh, an interesting geopolitical row. Um, as I mean, the thing is, though, is that lots of Indian people are understandably being very patriotic. And certainly Mr. Modi's visit has garnered a lot of headlines. And as a consequence, India's largest online travel company, Make My Trip, is actually reporting a 3,400% increase in searches for Lakshadweep on its platform. And while obviously the tourists are getting excited, locals and conservationists say they are actually getting slightly concerned that the islands just can't handle mass tourism on this level and, and, and might not want to. Joining me now to discuss it is Rickin Sheff. He's Assistant Vice President for the travel website, Masafia.com. Joins me on the line now. Rickin, morning to you. Um, have you seen a sort of uplift yourself on your website for Lakshadeep? And am I saying it right? Good morning. Uh, yes, uh, being an Indian, it's a very proud moment to suddenly hear about Lakshwadeep, whom you know where we've studied about Lakshwadeep in in, uh, in our historical days and in, in school and stuff. But suddenly, uh, you know, the Indian Prime Minister seen on social media snorkeling, strolling on a white sand beach, maybe lounging a chair next to the turquoise waters in Lakshwadeep. It's 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 such a proud feeling for for every Indian. That is very yes, lovely you've been, to hear. You've been pronouncing Lakshwadeep correctly. Oh, that's good. That makes me feel a lot better. Um, I mean, 3,400% more hits. Does that mean that, do you think, first of all, that's going to actually translate into visitors? Can the islands handle this number of, of visitors? You know, it, is, there a, is there a tourism sector there yet? See, comparison to Maldives is... Is, is correct in the sense in terms of the natural beauty in terms of in terms of what we see in terms of water and stuff but but is Lakshwadeep up to the mark that what Maldives is uh, I think it'll probably take some time for Lakshwadeep to come up to a stage uh, where Maldives is currently uh, of course uh, Lakshwadeep has its own challenges apart from the fact that it is known for its pristine coral reefs the biodiversity uh, the cultural heritage but handling mass tourism can definitely pose challenges for such destinations, considering the ecological sensitivity, the infrastructure issues, the culture impact. And, and, and I think the most important thing is, is connectivity across the globe. Yeah, I guess many of the islands in the Maldives that have these luxury resorts on them are actually sort of there wasn't anyone living on them beforehand. And so as a consequence, you're not causing a great deal of upheaval uh, in the local community as such. Whereas, of course, these islands are, are have, you know, they do have locals who are fishing and have lived there for generations. Exactly. And I think you've used the word correct in terms of the number of affluent individuals with disposable income who are willing to spend on luxury travel experiences are the kind of people who go into Maldives, right? And you mentioned some stats about three and a half thousand percent increase in, in, uh, in, in Lakshwadeep. 
but what is the percentage of affluent people who are a part of this 3400% surge right i understand being in indian it's great that you're talking about lakshwadeep but as you rightly said there are people who fish there there is a lot of cultural heritage that goes in there i'm sure the environmentalist will definitely worry lack of luxury five star hotels is another challenge that lakshwadeep is going to say that but having said that i think i think it's a good step uh to compete against against Maldives as far as Indians are concerned but if you go statistically i think about let's say 10% of the visitors to Maldives are Indians but they still have a 90% uh, database which is actually going to uh i mean not impact that much uh, but definitely it's it's something that uh, will entice people is internal tourism in india a, a sort of a, a, a rising in popularity because of course it's something that they promote a lot here in the uae you'll remember you know the whole world's coolest winter campaign was at first totally aimed at locals you know people and expats people who were living here of course it's now expanded slightly but uh, is is there that same level of enthusiasm for for internal tourism in india Yes absolutely in fact in, i mean india is a 1.3 billion population country right and it has so many factors so many places that you can visit so there is a mini switzerland in india which we call kashmir then there is kerala which is beautiful there is goa which gives you the the beaches and of course uh, you know there are a lot of cultural there are a lot of uh, natural reserves that uh, that has been attracting a lot of tourists within india as well and i think the indian government is doing a great deal over the last 5 uh, years in order to promote tourism within india as well If I wanted to go to Lakshadweep next week would there be flights to get me there would there be hotels to house me would there be restaurants to feed me So if you ask me there's no direct flight into Lakshadweep from UAE at the moment okay. right so of course you need to go to uh, Mumbai or maybe Kochi and then take a connecting uh, domestic flight or 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 water transport to reach there uh I'm afraid you will not find five star hotels in Lakshadweep and then you'll have to probably look at uh, maybe B&Bs and uh, and uh, probably look at uh, little less luxury hotels there. That sounds great. It's a really good independent holiday and you get in there before the masses, before the crowds. I think it's probably I think that that's probably what they're going to get almost straight away is people who are a little bit more intrepid uh, and I think that sounds like a great way to travel. Uh, as always, Rick, and thank you so much for joining us on the agenda. Always lovely to speak to you. And indeed, yes, a proud moment uh, for all Indians uh, when you uh, think about the, the I mean the amazing publicity that Lakshadweep is getting at the moment thanks to President Modi's visit. Uh, but Rick Incheth there, Assistant Vice President for the travel website Masafir.com. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Welcome back to the agenda. Right, big question for you this morning. Do you have a favorite tree? This man does. There's one particular tree that I've been uh, having special relationship with, so to say, in the last 15 years. You know, it's just I got connected with that tree. I just liked it and I liked its roots and the trunk and branches and everything. So I started climbing it years ago and that's it. I have a connection. Jennifer's got in touch saying I definitely have a favorite tree. It's in my hometown and it grows directly below a power line. Thankfully, it is trimmed around the line, giving it the appearance that is straight out of a Dr. Zeus book. Keep your comments coming about favorite trees. I'm really enjoying them. We're not talking about species, we're talking about individuals. 
That clip that you just heard there was tennis star Novak Djokovic giving a, a sort of slightly unexpected revelation about a tree in Melbourne's Botanic Gardens. That was during a post-match press conference at the Australian Open. And it's got us wondering about people and their special relationships with special trees. Because Novak is not alone. In fact, my next guest has actually interviewed hundreds of people about this very topic, including naturalist Chris Packham and the actress Dame Judi Dench. Vicky Allen is a journalist. She's the author of For the Love of Trees, and she joins me now on Teams. Vicky, good morning to you. So interesting um, that you managed to write an entire book on on people having favourite trees. It sounds like it's more common than we realise. Yeah, I mean, and what's really interesting to me about what Novak Djokovic is saying is that it's it's what a lot of people were saying to me kind of again and again in different ways. Um, you know, that this that they had a relationship, a proper relationship with a tree and they thought of the trees as friends or even I mean, it's interesting with Judy Dent. She's she's planted trees um, in memory. She plants trees in memory for 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 friends who have died and she just keeps planting them. I met her earlier this year and she said, oh, no, I'm going to have to plant another tree. And she's obviously at that point in her life where she's planting lots of them. But um you know, so not only planting trees, but um, just, you know, seeing a tree and, and finding that you have a connection with them was a big feature of lots of the people that I interviewed. Now, Novak says that meditating by the tree helps him stay focused. Is there any sort of proven link that, that trees have an impact on our mental health? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a link um, in terms of health. Like the, you know, there's studies that show that, say, for instance, um, you can, you know, if you um, if you if you have a tree outside your window when you're recovering from surgery, um, you'd be more likely to to recover better. And I think a lot of those links are to do with mental health. You know, that's you know that when we get better health, often it's to do with a mental health factor. Oddly enough. It's interesting you mention that because my favourite tree is actually outside a hospital that my son had to stay in for, for quite a long stretch of time. And I think it's a, a lilac tree. And when we arrived, it was May and there were some beautiful purple blossoms on it. And it was a real mood lifter at a very difficult time. And then obviously we followed the tree through summer. And then just around autumn, um, when my son was released from hospital, of course, the leaves were all falling down. And I definitely feel quite a weirdly strong connection with that tree because it was sort of the only thing to look out. When you looked out the window, it was sort of the only thing I could see. What is the... I mean, I definitely have a feeling there, but but I think maybe that's more to do with the memories I was having at the time and maybe less to do with the tree. What is it about trees that people say they like so much? You know, what, what are the phrases they use to describe them? What, what's the feelings? I mean, one thing that um, Djokovic said there, which was that, you know, it, it was about the oldness of the tree. You know, this sort of sense that, that, that trees live on a different time. They're a different size. And I think that puts our lives a little bit in perspective because, you know, we're rushing around and all that kind of thing. And then we come to this other kind of enormous kind of being in a way. Um, you know, it's got its roots that spread out underneath. It's got its branches that go above us. And we know that it's, you know, particularly with the old trees, that it's been there a long time. And I think it's that kind of perspective a lot of the time that, that, you know, we're sort of grounding ourselves and putting ourselves, you know, 
all, all the kind of little little niggles of life in in that bigger context. If people are listening to this and thinking, I feel like I'm, I'm missing out on this, I want to find a favourite tree, how would you suggest people go about it? Well, I mean, you should just go out for a walk and um, you could go to your local park or, you know, often it's it's not, it's you know, for me, like my favourite trees, actually, I, I, go, I go for a little walk along the river near here. I'm in Leith in Edinburgh and... Um, and it's it's a kind of extraordinary tree that leans out over the river. And it's really just like what tree catches your eye and, and maybe go up to it and just spend a bit of time time under it if you're drawn to it. Um, and obviously, Djokovic climbs in the trees, which, um, you know, a lot of people actually did also um, that I interviewed with. So my sister lives in the English countryside in Devon and, and is uh, within our family. We describe her as, as, as quite a hippie. And she genuinely believes in the value of hugging trees. And, and, I, and I say that you can hear that I sort of slightly take the mickey out of her when, when we talk about it in my voice there. But, but is, you know, I mean, having spent so much time talking to people about trees, do many of your interview subjects also hug the trees? Yes, loads of people were hugging trees. And, um, you know, actually, it's interesting because I wrote a lot of this book during lockdown. So um, so there was, um, you know, there was an extra comfort of trees during that time. I think people were looking to their local trees. They, there was a lot of, you know, in here in the UK, there was a lot of reaction to this, the, the spring in that year. And um, so people were sometimes going out and hugging trees in the absence of being able to hug people. And um, I think it was in Iceland that they were actually encouraging people to go out and do that, go and hug a tree. It's that solidity, that certainty. I can, I can, I can get it. I can actually get it. Vicky, it's been a great pleasure to have you join us on the line this morning. Thank you very much indeed for getting up so early uh, in Scotland. Lovely to have you with us. Vicky Allen, journalist and author of For the Love of Trees. Uh, thank you very much indeed for your time. Turning your attention now to demographics, because it turns out when it comes to demographics, uh, size really does matter because <laughs> an falling birth rate is a cause for concern. And we've actually seen it discussed recently in this country. And we're going to come to that in the next 10 minutes or so. But China is the latest place to see a notable fall in its population. Data, uh, recent data released a couple of days ago shows that there are now just over 1.4 billion Chinese people, or that was at the end of 2023. That is a 2 million decrease from 2022. Um, And this drop that we've just seen is double that of the previous year. Now, experts say the fall is expected given the country's expanding urban class and they also have a record low birth rate. But nevertheless, the government there is trying to slow that trend. But why? Joining us now to explain is Professor Stuart Gietel-Baston. He's a population policy expert at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. He actually very recently moved to Hong Kong from Abu Dhabi and has very kindly joined us on the line. Uh, Professor, how are you? Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's it's nice to hear the old adverts again. Uh, <laughs> yeah, on the radio. That's I know you've missed Alfred. I hear of this. I know you Alfred, yeah. Everyone <laughs> loves Alfred. Um, okay, so tell me why the Chinese government, or why demographers, why anyone would be concerned about a population of a country falling? Well, so um, 
When we think about population growth and we think about a population which tends to have quite a young age of population, obviously this is this tends to be more associated with economic growth, right? The ability to have a large labour force, the ability to pay for uh, welfare services, health and social services and so on and so forth. When a population is declining, but then it's almost always ageing at the same time, so the age structure of the population changes, then obviously the traditional economic view is that it's harder for the economy to grow and it's also harder for a smaller kind of workforce to be able to support an increasingly large older population and all the things that go with that like pensions and social welfare and health systems and things like that. So that's one of the main reasons why there is this kind of concern about um, low fertility rates. But of course, you know, low fertility, all, more than half of the population of the world live in countries or live in states where the fertility rate is below two, right? It's below the replacement rate. So it's it's very, very common. And of course, it is and actually it is inevitable that every country in the world eventually will go through a period of, of decline. Some places are already doing it, such as China. Others are going to take a very long time uh, to get there. But it is an inevitability uh, which all countries are going to have to face at some point in the f- in the future. Why is it inevitable? So, because okay, so when we look in the past. Fertility rates and mortality rates were high. Okay, so uh, when we look in the past, uh, even though people had quite a few children, the death rates were generally quite high as well. So up until like the 19th and early 20th century across most of the world, population growth was pretty flat. Then mortality falls and the fertility rate stays relatively high. The birth rate stays quite high. So then in the 20th century and and today, that's why we've seen this tremendous uh, increase in global population. Now, given the experience that we've had all around the world so far, fertility rates then decline. And that's when population growth slows down. And there's nothing to indicate that even in countries around the world now where the fertility rates are quite high, that in the future we wouldn't expect them to have also a fertility decline as well. And so in the future when a fertility decline occurs, as it is already happening, and this comes around through, as you mentioned, urbanisation and development and industrialisation and women's rights and education and all these different things, fertility rates will fall and then eventually maybe way in the future, all countries will go through a period of at least stagnation or very, very slow population growth or even eventually population decline. And so why is it happening sort of specifically now in China? Because you'd have thought that it would happen a while back because they have the one child policy, right? And so, so and that's now been abolished. But are Chinese women not having more babies, even though they're allowed to now? That's right. So uh, China has got a is one of the lowest fertility rates in the world right now. So this is they have what we call a total fertility rate of about one, um, which is very very low. Now you might think, well, China's had the one child policy since 1980, so surely it would have a fertility rate of one for the last 40 years or so. But that's not actually the case because um, uh, since actually 1984, there's been very various different. Uh, 
um, uh, ways uh, or, or conditions whereby you were able to have more than one child in China. It's only recently that this became a national two-child policy and then a national three-child policy. But as you observe, even though people in China, women in China are allowed to have um, now three children universally, uh, this is uh, not happening. And that is not... For those of us who study China, this has not been a big surprise because, you know, if you go to a Chinese city or even you go to a small Chinese town, their attitudes and around childbearing, but also the struggles around starting and uh, growing a family are very, very similar to if you are here in Hong Kong, where we had no history of restrictions, or if you're in Japan or in Singapore, but also in, in Europe and in, in other places of the world where the fertility rate is low. Do you think the truth of it is, is that um, educated women just don't want to have very many babies? Is that what it comes down to? Once you get a, an educated female population, the enthusiasm for giving birth many times and raising many children sort of slightly falls away. Well, uh, you're not. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you're not probably far off. I mean, I, I think that if you're um, um, not just education, but of course, if you're if you've gone through education and you've got a decent job, then in many societies in the world, the single worst thing you can do for your career progression, you're right, is is to is to get pregnant and, and is to have a child. There's no doubt about that, right? But that's not necessarily the fault. Uh, that's not the fault of babies, right? That's the fault of the system. That the system should be in place whereby the, the penalties for childbearing. So I know you shouldn't think of me childbearing is a wonderful thing and children are wonderful and babies are great. But the penalties uh, to women uh, for childbearing, for their uh, career, but also for their lives, you know, for dignity, for uh, for lifestyle, for leisure, for all of those different things, the penalties um, are very, very great in many parts of the world. And, and that is the part that is the fault of government, uh, but also the fault of employers and also the fault of husbands and boyfriends and mothers-in-law and the community. Right. We, we all have to take responsibility um, for this. So that's why I think it's uh, the way I prefer to think about it is rather than low fertility rates being the problem to be solved, they're actually a symptom, like a downstream consequence of other kind of institutional problems or institutional malfunctions which need to be uh, better addressed. I have been desperately searching while you've uh, just been answering that question for a clip that I know I have somewhere of Elon Musk talking about population decline because it's one of his biggest concerns. Uh, he really he talks about it an awful lot and he actually fears population collapse in the world. Is that something that you feel nervous about, uh, you know, considering the background of your extensive research? No. Oh, good. That's good. <laughs> I mean, that's encouraging. I mean, not any time soon. Not any time soon. You know, I, I mean, the, the thing is, is that there are, okay, there's definitely, if you're in a rural county, 
in northeastern China, in Liaoning province, for example, um, if I were the mayor up there, then, yeah, I would be really worried about population collapse, right? Because on a, on a local, on a regional level, we are seeing tremendous uh, rates of depopulation. And that brings all kinds of problems with it, right? All kinds of uh, issues around infrastructure of public services and stuff like that, right? Are we going to see a population collapse globally over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, I think it's extremely unlikely. And, um, you know, I, I, it's just, you know, because it, this would have to go against, so many things would have to go against, you know, the human instinct. There is an instinct to, to reproduce, right? There is a, a need to nurture, which, uh, which exists. And that when we do our surveys, it's still, despite what Mr. Musk might think, there's very, very few people percentage-wise across the world who state a preference to say, I absolutely don't want any children over the course of my lifetime ever under any circumstances. No, right? People may actually want to have more children than they end up having. That's what the surveys tell us. And so if we can bridge that gap between the aspiration and reality and enable people to have the number of children that they want through better childcare systems, better you know, improved gender roles, better workplace culture, all of the things that we know make having children and, uh, and making your family grow difficult, then there's no reason why this you know, population collapse should happen anytime soon. Absolutely fascinating conversation, sir. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to speak to us this morning on the agenda. You've just been listening to the voice of Professor Stuart Gietel-Baston. He's a population policy expert at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. He actually very recently, like in the last month or so, moved to Hong Kong from Abu Dhabi. Uh, unbelievable that we didn't manage to get him on the radio while he was still here in the UAE, but certainly a very interesting conversation indeed. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to the show. And we are discussing demographics on the agenda today. That is uh, as China announces its population has decreased by 2 million over the last year. Now, that uh, drop is double what it was last year. And ultimately, the experts are worried it could lead to an economic crunch in the future, where there aren't enough young people to earn the money to pay the taxes to support the old people. That is the most simple version of the sort of economic story that I can possibly give you. Um, And demographic growth is a cause for concern here in the UAE as well. But for quite different reasons, because although we've got lots of expats wanting to come to earn money, the UAE is still really keen to protect its local population. And in fact, a couple of strategies have been introduced just recently to encourage more nationals to have more children. Um, We've had the Dubai wedding programme that was announced just in the last 24 hours or so. That's offering citizens incentives to get married. Um, They're reducing wedding costs, suggesting mass weddings, things like that. And last week, Dubai's government outlined a really ambitious social welfare strategy, essentially focused at doubling the number of Emirati families in Dubai within a decade. And the way they're doing that is with things like improvements to housing, uh, you know, plots of land, homes, um, just being given to Emirati families. And then there's sort of the idea of improving education and healthcare. Huge budget for that, 208 billion dirhams over the next decade. 
Now, we wanted to get into the reasoning behind these plans. And earlier I spoke to Professor Wifag Adnan from New York University, Abu Dhabi. Uh, Now, she specialises there in labour and development economics. And she sort of gave me a bit of an insight as to how she was viewing these policies. So the way I think about this is the policy wants ambitious and highly educated young people to think, I think, more positively about marriage and children. And I think the issue is that many people think that there's a trade-off, right? So to establish yourself as an educated person with a high-profile career, you need to put marriage off for as long as possible. And that's really necessary, especially now with AI and even before AI with globalization. You know, you need to upskill, you need to remain competitive in the labor market. This is just something you need to do as an educated person who's very ambitious. You just need to put marriage off as, as much as possible. And so the logic is not just that, but even more so, this is the only successful path. This is the only way you're going to be able to build a family because, you know, life is just so expensive. Daycares are expensive and education and healthcare and everything is just so expensive. So this is not just something you should do, but this is probably the only thing you can do to build a family. Another side is, well, yeah, but, you know, you could also just have a family And then just make major sacrifices in your career. It's okay to take a few setbacks. And then this is maybe going to lead you to have a a slightly less fulfilling life. But that's, you know, that's okay. You don't have to live the lavish lifestyle. And so I think that the idea is that when the government addresses the most pressing concerns, education, maybe early childhood education as well, healthcare, housing, all these things that you mentioned, then maybe young Emirati citizens can strive for both. And then this trade-off that exists can just kind of diminish. I totally understand what you're saying, because I think that if you look at most families, the reason why they choose not to have lots of children is because ultimately children are expensive. Exactly. I I mean, the the research is still very much ongoing on this, but recent research seems to show that people are actually quite responsive to policies that facilitate work-life balance, even more so than policies that just, you know, give you what is now called the baby bonus, right? Which are these cash transfers um, that many countries in the developed world are doing. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because, of course, The UAE isn't the only country trying to increase its national population. You know, we've seen it, for example, over in Asia, less so in in China. Obviously, they went the other way at one stage. But obviously, in, in Korea and Japan, there are concerns that the population there is going to shrink dramatically because women just aren't having as many children. Right. And this is the the tug of war, right, that we have when we discuss economic development. We we always hail these countries, right, like Singapore and South Korea and Japan and many European countries is driving economic development, teaching us a lot about economic development. But what we witness, right, is that as economic development increases, and especially as women make substantial gains in educational attainment, What we observe following that is that the age of first marriage declines and fertility declines. We see this especially in the most educated segments of those societies. So in the U.S., for example, you always see declining fertility rates, but they're declining faster and they're even starting at at a lower point 
than in non-educated segments. And this here, we're talking about college educated, of course. So these trends have always had demographers very worried uh, because, you know, having an aging population raises a lot of concerns about the need to secure social security and, and pensions, and also just having a young and productive workforce to provide goods and services for an economy. And people seem to understand these macro issues. It's, it's, it's actually quite interesting. But interestingly enough, people don't easily change their views or their behavior. <laughs> so as we economists like to say, people respond to incentives, right? And so your policy is as good as the incentives that you put out there. And so this policy is saying, well, okay, we're going to take a series of measures that will hopefully incentivize people to reconsider their views on family, fertility, and marriage. I think the message they're trying to send is something along the lines of, you know, if we strengthen the nuclear family and if we facilitate work-life balance, then, you know, this is something that's patriotic, but it's, you know, it's also good for the economy. It makes us more stable and more secure. Ultimately, I mean, I was I was thinking about this policy earlier this morning and I realized that on one level, you know, if the government's asking women to have lots more babies, then that could feel like an extra pressure because women are also being encouraged in this country to get tertiary education, go to university and go on to become impressive career women as well. And and now they've got to have lots of babies. And then I thought about it a little bit more. And I thought, actually, you don't have to have loads more babies. You could just have maybe one or two. And if the support was there... <laughs> Uh, if the support was there, then maybe you would. Like, for example, I think I would have had a third child if someone had told me that the childcare was going to be paid for, that my healthcare was going to be tip top, um, that they were going to help me buy a bigger house. A and all of a sudden, you know, a, a big family is a lovely thing to have. A and so I, I can see it from both sides of you. On one side, I'm a bit like, my goodness, that's quite a lot of pressure on women. And on the other side, I'm like, actually, if the government's going to facilitate you having a bigger family, then that's kind of lovely. I, I completely agree with that, especially your latter point is interesting because I, I can't remember the year, but I remember a few years ago, I saw an article in The Economist and they were talking about how in most countries, people actually regret not having had more children. And I thought that was absolutely uh, fascinating and, and super important because, you know, you always think, oh, well, you know, this is just our culture. You know, yeah, at least from my perspective, I'm always thinking, well, you know, as Arabs, you know, we were always told that we should have bigger families and, and have a lot of children. And this just makes the family better. But it actually turns out that it's not a cultural issue. Like most people do wish they had bigger families and the reason that they don't is usually economic reasons, right? Like reasons that policymakers could potentially address. And, you know, I think this issue with women, right, is particularly important. So at a very macro level, when you think of things on the macro level, there's actually a U-shaped relationship between female labor force participation and economic development. And so... Countries that are very poor or are at early stages of economic development, they experience high rates of female labor force participation. And that's because they work out of necessity or they seek jobs out of necessity. And women at the high end of economic development 
are much more likely to participate in the labor force, but that's because they're seeking high-wage opportunities, which are usually available in rich countries. And it's that middle ground where women don't really see the incentive to, to seek formal employment, but also don't need to work out of necessity, especially if their husbands are in pretty good positions, then that's when you see the lowest female labor force participation. So I think the idea behind the policy is trying to, to keep moving the country right into this high level of economic development so that women continually have an incentive to work. But then there's also, like you said, this, this pressure. And I think it's going to all come down to the details. For example, flexible schedules in the labor market, remote work, freelancing licenses have been hailed as an absolutely great move in the past couple of years. All of these different things are going to be especially important for women because policy instruments that can create more flexibility in the labor market can allow women to contribute more. Professor Wifag Adnan there from New York University, Abu Dhabi, where she specializes in labor and development economics. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to the program. And we have been discussing population on the program today, or the issues with uh, trying to grow your population. Uh, Lots of comments coming through. Uh, Mona says, I think the reason why there's a drop in childbearing globally is because we're moving away from communal living to individualistic living, she said carefully. Um, Quite written in with a very interesting comment. Elon Musk seems to be single-handedly taking care of the population decline problem. Might be right on that one. Um, And Abdul Salam saying uh, easy ways to encourage people to have more babies, Um, frequent and prolonged power cuts or cuts to the Wi-Fi and the reduce the quality on birth control tools. Uh, He is joking in that comment, I must emphasise. Also, Susie's got in touch saying there are real difficulties and challenges uh, that women face after becoming a mum. And maybe if life's made a bit easier, um, then maybe more women would be inclined to have more children. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8. This is a really interesting local story that just came out in the last 24 hours or so because scientists at American University of Sharjah have managed to get a patent for a new breast cancer therapy that promises minimal side effects and maximum impact. It's quite complex, but basically the new therapy uses tiny capsules or nanocarriers that bind with the breast cancer tissues. And then these are activated with ultrasound waves. And it means that the chemotherapy is only actually released into the affected tissues. And I mean, even those of us who don't have any sort of scientific background know how damaging chemotherapy can be to the whole body. So the idea that this medicine could be directed in some way is very, very encouraging indeed. It is quite technical. So joining me now to explain a bit more is lead scientist Galab Husseini, who's a professor of chemical and biological engineering at the American University of Sharjah. So thank you very much for joining me on the line. First of all, congratulations on this patent. Tell me, why is it such a game changer when it comes to the treatment of breast cancer primarily? 
So the the main uh, problem with the chemotherapy is that it delivered systemically, which means throughout the body. It doesn't only affect the tumor, but affects all the healthy cells surrounding it. That's why people undergoing chemotherapy lose their hair. They have problems with their GI tract. They feel nauseous. Uh, they could even develop an ulcer. They have problems with their immune system. A lot of people undergoing chemotherapy are not supposed to interact with the public simply because their immune system is low. And actually more important and more devastating is that some of the chemotherapy drugs are cardiotoxic. They can actually kill the, the heart muscle. In fact, last year in the U.S., about, you know, many many people have survived uh, a chemotherapy or they were declared in remission. So they actually overcame the cancer, the tumor, but they died because of the complications of congestive heart failure because these, because these chemicals are so strong that they actually kill the, uh, the heart muscle and then people can, can ju ju just die obviously without, the, uh, without their heart. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to develop this magic bullet, so to speak. So we're trying to just target the tumor without affecting the other healthy cells in the body. So let me just give you a background. You go to an oncologist, hopefully none of you have to go through to an oncologist, but when you go to an oncologist, the oncologist is a doctor and a doctor is supposed to extend your lifespan, right? And while they think about the side effects that you go through, their main goal is to extend your life. Okay, that's what they do. And so all of these chemicals, all of these chemotherapies have all of these side effects, but until now, we haven't been able to develop a magic bullet, especially in, in cancer, that would just target the cancer preferentially and avoid any uh, complications or any. What we did in the group, and this is pretty exciting, there are there, the, 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 the group itself is called the Drug Delivery Group at the American University of Sharjah. We deliver medications directly to the, to the disease side. Drug delivery is a science, is an engineering, whereby you deliver the, uh, the therapeutics. It doesn't only have to be chemotherapy, but therapeutics only to the disease side. So you spare the healthy cells in the body. And so <clears throat> what we did is we, we the, the drug delivery targets or cancer drug delivery targets the cancer. There are three ways that you can target the cancer. One of them is by size. So if you want to think about the tumor, the tumor uh, uh, vessels, they grow or the, the tissues themselves grow up haphazardly. They grow really quickly. And so um, they do not have enough time to have nice vessels. Their vessels uh, are defective and they have holes inside them. So if you can design a nanocarrier, uh, that will take a nanocapsule. I like to use capsule because everybody, when they talk about medications, they take capsules usually. So if you take a, a capsule, which is in the nano range, and in the nano range, it's not milli, which you can measure with the ruler, and it's not micro, such as microbes, such as a bacteria, which you cannot see with your own eyes. You're talking about a thousand times smaller. So it's very small. You cannot see it with your eyes. You cannot see it under a microscope. In fact, we have to go to specialized equipment to be able to see it. So if you design these nanocarriers to be under 200 nanometers, then they will accumulate at the tumor by passive diffusion, simply because they can fit into the tumor and slowly release their contents. So this is one way that you can deliver uh, the, or this is one way that we use these nanocarriers by passively uh, using and making use of these holes uh, uh, inside the uh, vasculature of the tumor. Second one is you are we trying to target it biologically. What do I mean by biologically? It's basically the key unlock mechanism. I'll explain. On the surface of a cancer, there are many locks. Okay, 
Um, and so if you know what the lock is, then you can take the nano carrier. This is your nano carrier and you attach to it this key. And this key would preferentially go to the tumor because the locks are on the surface. So that's called biological targeting. And that's also another way to target the cancer. So first of all, by size, second biologically, the key unlock mechanism. Uh, 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 if you want to call it receptor binding in biology, I don't want to get too technical. And then the third way, once you have that nanocarrier at the tumor site because you've targeted to the tumor site, then you apply ultrasound and ultrasound itself has the ability to shake in a way to shake these nanocarriers so they can deliver their therapeutic uh, content to the tumor site only. So this way you are targeting it three ways using size, using the key unlock mechanism, which is biological, and also using trigger targeting, which is ultrasound. So, and that's what's so novel about this. Um, it, 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 research groups usually focus on one or two targeting methods. We're trying to target three. Um, and we we are hopeful that this will make it into clinics because, uh, uh, because again, it's, it's multimodal. We're not only depending on one targeting modality, but many. It's absolutely fascinating. It's clearly um, a, a very exciting threshold that we see. It feels like we're entering this sort of slightly new era of cancer treatment where um, the medicines are so much more directional uh, and you don't sort of get that awful effect on where, where the entire body is, is suffering from, from the medicine. Uh, Dr. Caleb Husseini, a Professor of Chemical and Biological Engineering at American University, Sharjah, thank you so much for your time on the agenda today and congratulations to again on that patent. We are going to turn our attention to sports now uh, because our sports editor, Chris McCarty, has sent us all the latest headlines for us uh, ahead of a very busy weekend. Well, a very good morning, Georgia. Happy Friday. Would you believe it? The weekend is here already. Right. Where do you want to start? The weekend promises to be another barnstormer in the world of sport. But before we get to that, let's talk some local sport if we can. Let's start with day two of the Hero Dubai Desert Classic, of course, taking place down at Enbridge Golf Club. I am, of course, talking golf. And one man has broken clear of the rest. Andy Sullivan, three shots clear of the rest of the field on 10 under parties and a wonderful start to his second round. He's moved from five under to 10 under. He's added five shots in his opening eight holes. A fantastic start for Andy. He's had success in this part of the world before. A hugely popular figure, the Englishman, and he has a three-shot lead over a chasing pack that includes Torbjorn Olison, the Dane. He's had his trials and tribulations off the course in the last couple of years, has Torbjorn. He's back in form, and I think he's a man to watch out for in 2024. Last week's winner, Tommy Fleetwood, he's also there or thereabouts as well. He's playing some good golf but Andy Sullivan's still a long way to go but it's that man who leads the Hero Dubai Desert Classic on this day too. As for the tennis, well, some results to bring you bang up to date with, and I can tell you that Yannick Sinner's serene progress continues down under the Italian, who is much fancied by many to make a breakthrough year this year. He's through in straight sets, another comfortable outing for that man. Arina Sabalenka on the women's side, she's also through, and given the fact that Alina Rybakina was knocked out yesterday, Zabalenka one of now the favourites to go on and clinch this female title. Yes, you've got Igor Svjontek. Yes, you've got Koro Go uh, Corey Goff. But Arena Sabalenka on her day as good 
as anyone. So that's the golf and the tennis. In terms of the football, well, let's look back on last night. Let's start with the Asian Cup where the United Arab Emirates were held to a 1-1 draw with Palestine. They did take the lead, did the UAE. Paulo Bento's men they then had Khalfan Al-Hamadi sent off. Uh, Khalid Al-Hamadi, sorry, sent off. And then that gave the impetus to Palestine. They leveled things up. The UAE were holding on just a tad, but a 1-1 draw is good enough to take them top of their Asian Cup group. Of course, they're in the same group as Iran and Hong Kong. Having already beaten Hong Kong, the United Arab Emirates have given themselves a wonderful opportunity of reaching the knockout stages. There are wins too for Australia. Uh, they had a 1-0 victory over Syria and Uzbekistan. They beat India by three goals. Now, as for the African Cup of Nations, well, the big story overnight, Mohamed Salah limping off from Egypt's 2-2 draw with Ghana. Liverpool fans, I'm sure they will be awaiting with interest today updates on that injury. It looked like it was a hamstring strain. They will hope it's not a tear, because of course a tear means that Mohamed Salah will miss an awful lot more time of this business end of the footballing season. So we keep an eye on that. The other big result from last night, Nigeria getting a 1-0 win over another of the African powerhouses in the shape of the Ivory Coast. So that gets you bang up today. Oh, all of that, you've got darts over in Bahrain. Luke Littler, who of course stole the show at the recent PDC World Championships, he was victorious yesterday in his first outing since he catapulted himself into global stardom, if you will. Big weekend ahead of course for us it's all about the Hero Dubai Desert Classic we're on air tomorrow from 1 o'clock we're back with you 2 until 5 on Sunday see through this tournament to its conclusion you've got the Globe Soccer Awards a little later tonight our very own Tom Ucker will be hosting that one Pep Guardiola expected Erling Haaland there's a whisper that Cristiano Ronaldo will be here John Terry's already here so the biggest names in football have descended upon Dubai that one underway from 7pm tonight and then the Australian Open it continues apace and then throw in for a club football as well and you pretty much know what my weekend will be doing Georgia watching copious amounts of sport have a lovely weekend and I look forward to catching up with you again on Monday cheers Georgia lucky man Chris McCarty of course our sports editor plenty more of uh, Chris coming your way this afternoon from 4pm with your off script show uh, plus of course over the weekend The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.